Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're here this morning to proclaim Christ and hear him proclaimed, and we just pray that you would take away everything else. Just bless us in that endeavor. Meet us there. Amen. The 66 books of the Old Testament, Old and New Testaments, contain a sufficient account of who God is and what God has done and what God will do. It is also a record of who man is and where we come from and where we're headed. It answers the questions, what is wrong with the world? And how can what's wrong be made right? It also includes a series of instructions, or we could even say warnings from God to man, at times what we might call the righteous requirements of man by God. My intention is to look at two primary texts this morning. We'll mention a bunch of others, but we're going to basically be in two. From the Old Testament, we will be in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 10. And in the New Testament, we will read what is probably much more familiar than Deuteronomy chapter 10. We'll be in Luke chapter 15. If that doesn't ring a bell, it probably will when we start to read it. But let's look at Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 12, we'll go uh, through verse 16. This is what it says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In this passage, we see that God has a uniquely chosen people. They're set apart from the rest of the world. Everyone else on the world is different from this nation of Israel. And God is going to require some things of them. Now, already in using that word require, we could head in a bad direction. So let's be clear. God does not require certain things of them so that they can earn this special status as God's chosen people. They are Israel already when this is being written. And this is what is required of Israel. So he's not going to the Amorites or the Hittites, and he's not saying them, if you will meet all of these requirements, you will be my chosen people. That's not what's happening here. So to put this in New Testament terms, we are saved to certain requirements of the Lord. But we are not saved 
by satisfying those requirements. And that's an important difference that we need to remember. It would be very easy to read a passage like this and and come to the conclusion that, okay, well, if I do the requirements listed in verses 12 and 13, then the God in verse 14 will do for me what it promises in verses 15 and 16. Now, if I lost you there, let me explain. We'll, We'll go through this a little slower. The vast majority of, maybe all, but the, the, at least the vast majority of organized religions, and sadly, a lot of people who call themselves Christian, believe that if I will satisfy God's requirements, like, for example, what we just read, fear him, walk in all his ways, love him, serve him, keep his commandments... If I can do all that, then God is now obligated to keep up his end of the deal. And now he has to love and choose me as one of his own. Because that's the bargain, right? Well, when we get to Luke 15 in a little bit here, we're going to see Jesus address the sort of people who absolutely bought into that way of thinking. And he's not going to point out that they're right. So how do we think about this rightly? I think it would be helpful if maybe we look at it in reverse order here. We'll start at the bottom and then work our way back up the paragraph. Let's look at verse 16. It says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So when we think about God's chosen people, I think we have to recognize something. That the first thing that happens is that for God's God's people is a radical, permanent, irreversible marking or changing of their hearts by God. In John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and he says something that was very radical at the time, and honestly, it's still radical today. He tells them this, it says... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The work of making a person born again, or another way of saying it might be replacing their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, or circumcising their heart, 
is the work of the Spirit. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. This is God speaking to his people. This is what he tells them. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if we're not careful, we, we will lose sight of the fact that in some ways God's the one who's going to circumcise our heart, who's going to mark us permanently and irreversibly. We don't change hearts, not our own or anybody else's. But we can cry out to the Lord that he would. We find intercessory prayer throughout the Bible. In Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4, it says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And again in Romans chapter 10 verse 1 it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We can also proclaim the gospel in the hope that God would open ears to hear it. Romans 10 Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So there is a supernatural work that we simply cannot do in the changing of a sinner's heart and in the making of someone who is dead spiritually alive. And I think we have to start out there in recognizing that. But if you were dead in your sins and God made you alive in Christ, what does the Lord require of you? And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, I believe that there are three basic things. I'm lumping a couple things together in some of these, but three things. The first one would be to fear and love the Lord. Number one, fear and love the Lord. Number two, serve and worship the Lord. And number three, walk in the ways and keep the commandments of the Lord. So to begin, to be in Christ is to fear the Lord. Now before we stray too far from that word, I think we just should acknowledge to some extent the word fear means fear. So C.S. Lewis might describe it this way. He would say Aslan is not a tame lion, right? Jesus Christ is not some delicate flower of an almost man who would never hurt anyone. That's not the man described for us in the scriptures. And that's just not who's coming back. So if he comes back in our lifetime and we see him return, that's not who's coming back. The Bible gives us a pretty vivid description of who's coming. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who's coming. That's who we worship on Sunday mornings. That's who we proclaim. So in one sense, fear is absolutely an appropriate response. However, it is also appropriate to acknowledge that Not everyone should fear the Lord in the same way. Burke Parsons said, The gospel is the difference between being afraid of God and fearing God. Another way of thinking about this would be to say that those who are in Christ have a fear of God that is marked by reverence and awe. And those who hate Christ, and by the way, there's only two categories of human beings throughout history, right? There's no middle way. There's a narrow way and there's a wide way. There are those who love him. There are those who hate him. There's no third category. So for those who hate Christ, they should have a fear of God marked by dread and an overwhelming sense of terror. So there will be different responses when Revelation 19 becomes a reality. But we are to fear the Lord and to love the Lord. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Is there an affection? You can do a lot of religious stuff, but is there an affection for Jesus in you? Is there a desire for Christ? to seek him, to know him, to draw near to him. This is going to be a big problem for some people when we get to Luke 15. How often is Jesus the object of your mind's attention throughout the week? How fervently do you and I search for the Jesus of the scriptures, even if that means we need to let go of some of our wrong assumptions about who that man is. We dare not worship a Jesus that we have constructed in our own head, but isn't the Jesus in the book. That's idolatry. We are required to serve and worship the Lord. Part of that means gathering together with other saints on the Lord's Day for worship, And I know that there are many people in this room who could testify to some difficult experiences in a local church. 
And there are seasons of healing needed sometimes. However, that should not continue to keep us away from the assembly of the saints on a Sunday morning. The Bible knows nothing of we're just going to stay home and we'll listen to a sermon. As a matter of fact, it says don't do that. Don't neglect together. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to strip, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there are, of course, exceptions. There are people who are shut-ins. There are, there are unique situations. But as a general command for God's people, gather together for corporate worship. And if you've had a painful church experience, let me challenge, challenge you just a little bit with this. If you got food poisoning at the seafood bar, and, you know, it's okay to decide, I'm never going back there again. It would even be okay to say, I'm never eating seafood again. Um, you might, in a difficult, painful moment, say, I'm never eating again. From now on, I'm just going to drink water for the rest of my life. Okay, in the moment, but you can't stay there. You need the nourishment and the fellowship of a local church. We are required to walk in the ways of the Lord to keep his commandments. What does Ezekiel tell God's people? When he explains that God will give them a new heart, he also tells them this. Listen to this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations." It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things, 
or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. God's people still sin. But they are marked for the rest of their lives by a sensitivity to their own sin and a brokenness over their own sin that those who are not in Christ don't possess. They're not bothered by their sins. David was the apple of God's eye, but he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Paul, who did so many incredible things to include raise Eutychus from the dead at Troas, this is what he said about himself. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. He also said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Part of what's required of us is the fight of mortifying our own sin. God's people are permanently and irreversibly marked by him. And while we cannot see the condition of a person's heart, we can see if his life is marked by what God requires of him. So keeping these things in mind, let's turn to the right. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. If that didn't ring a bell... As we look at it here, it's probably going to, if you have any sort of church background. This chapter contains three parables of Jesus, which are pretty familiar, especially the last one. I'm not sure if they're normally thought of as all being connected together, but they absolutely are. They're all part of it, one conversation Jesus is responding to a charge against him. You could probably guess who's making the charge against him. Let's look and it will tell us what's going on here. Let's just look at the first two verses to get us started. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we have right here in the first two verses... Two distinct groups of people. And they're responding to Jesus in two very different ways. So the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. And these are not people who are secret sinners, let's say. These are the people who are in some sense identified with their sins. Their sins are public They are the worst of society. They are thought of as the scum of the earth. They are the traitors, the grotesque sexual sinners and drunkards and addicts. They obviously 
unmistakably, there's no hiding it, have a massive, crippling sin problem. And then there's the second group, the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the decent, pure, so-called, dignified, esteemed in their society. They don't they, they read books of the Bible, but they don't just read books of the Bible. They memorize books of the Bible. They could recite you books or maybe all the books of the, the Torah. They fulfill every human expectation for what it means to belong to the kingdom of heaven, to satisfy the requirements of God from the outside looking in anyway. And they're grumbling against Jesus. And this is his response. In verse 3, he begins, So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So let's note a couple things here. First, we started out with one of a hundred sheep. And then we move to one of ten coins. And also note that it's always the owner seeking what is lost, not the other way around. The woman goes to great effort conducting a thorough search for her lost coin. And in both examples, and this is important, the finding of what was lost results in great rejoicing. There's no grumbling at this news. So we had a lost sheep and a lost coin, and now the stakes are going to get real high real fast. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we started out with one sheep out of a hundred and one Then one coin out of ten. Now we're one of two sons. 
And the younger son just wants the money so he can leave his father and go enjoy the world. The younger son doesn't want his father. And frankly, if we can sort of just come right out and say it, he's tired of waiting for his father to die. I'm done waiting for you to die to get my inheritance. Just give it to me now. And the context here is that is the message that dad would have gotten. That, that, that was loud and clear for, for his father. So the son wastes his share on what the Bible calls reckless living. Uh, the, the, the implication here, if we put it in modern terms, and we won't go into too great a detail, but if you took, took a lot of money and decided to go live a sin-riddled existence in, say, Las Vegas for a few months, you can fill in the blanks from there. He wastes his inheritance on reckless living. But now the money's gone. He blew it. And so now everybody else has gone to all the women, all the so-called friends, everybody else, they're gone too. And he has sunk to the lowest state imaginable. He's starving to death, living amongst pigs. Now, it doesn't sound like a great life to us, but there's a particular abomination in this for the people at this time. Pigs were not, that's not cool. You didn't have anything to do with them. I mean, we like bacon, but I don't want to live with the pigs. Verse 17, let's keep going. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is what we call a moment of clarity. This spiritually dead man, for the purposes of this parable, this spiritually dead man became aware that he was dead. He sees himself clearly And he decides he's going to go back home, he's going to go to his father, and he's going to confess his own sin. And he's going to do it without providing any of the mitigating factors of why it just wasn't fair. He's not going to give any qualifiers. He's not going to tell dad about what a rough childhood he had or how he was disadvantaged. He is just going to lay it all out there. He's going to proclaim himself a sinner against heaven who's no longer worthy to be called his son. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. So there is something important to take from this. We're going to get to the big, you know, one of the big parts of this in a minute. But this is, we shouldn't just roll right by this. There is no such thing as someone who has genuinely come to repentance and faith, but their sins are just too great. You can't out-sin the grace of God. You might not really be repenting. You might be sorry that you got caught. That might be a problem. But if you have come to repentance and faith, God's not going to look at you and say, oh, that's just too awful. Whatever you have done, no matter how terrible your sins are, and they're terrible because mine are terrible. We're all in this together. It's not too late to turn. The blood of Jesus can wash those sins away. We need to remember that the wrath of God, because he is a just God, the wrath of God against the sins of his people has already been poured out on the Son. There's a very important word. It's one of those $10, you know, theology words, but it's an important word, and I think it's helpful in appreciating the nature of the gospel. That is propitiation. If you're going to remember one, that's, you could do worse. Propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. If you are in Christ, if he is in you, there's no wrath waiting for you. When that man in Revelation 19 is coming, he's coming with different things for different people. Let's just say that. And if you're in him, it's not his wrath. It's more complicated than this, but you could describe it this way. This this might be an imperfect description, but if you are in Christ, you have been saved by the blood of God the Son from the wrath of God the Father to new life which is sealed and secured and guaranteed by God the Spirit. Another way of saying this might be to say, You have been saved by God, to God, from God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. And it is the answer to how what's wrong with the world can be made right. It is the only answer. But the parable's not over. He's got another point to make to the Pharisees. There's another brother in this parable. And remember, the whole point of all three of these, he's talking to the Pharisees. He's responding to their charge against him. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house... He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, 
what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, this is the older brother, but he was angry and refused to go in. So let's note here that what causes rejoicing and celebration in the father's household, or we could say the kingdom of heaven, angers the older son who's representing the Pharisees. He's so angry, he's not, I'm not going in there. You see what he's telling them? You see what Jesus is telling these guys? He's saying, your souls are so bankrupt that you all would rather stand outside of heaven with your arms crossed, tapping your toe, rather than be in there with the wrong sorts of people. Let's keep going. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now in the version of this that plays in my head, uh, the, the, the son essentially by saying this is be, beginning to snarl his true feelings to his father. He, he's basically confronting his father with this question. I played the role of the good, loving, loyal son. I obeyed the rules and I acted like I loved you. Now what do I get out of it? The father answers him. Verse 31, And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So his father saying, son, you have me. You've had me when, when he, your brother, didn't. And that's the problem for the older son. He doesn't want the father. He stayed, he obeyed the rules. But just like his brother, he's basically been waiting for his father to hurry up and die. He just did it a different way. So the Pharisees have gone through the motions of meeting the righteous requirements of God, of serving and worshiping and obeying the commands, but they do not fear and love God. They hate him. Remember, there's only two categories of human beings. And note here, the parable stops. Father and son standing outside the party. We don't know what happens, right? Because this is Jesus challenging these Pharisees, basically saying, now what are you guys going to do? And some of them, a few of them, to their credit, Believed. And some of them 
will start to plot a murder. Because they don't love the son, and if they don't love the son, then they don't love the father. So if you've not let, yet believed, you can. There's still time. And if your sins are terrible, the grace of God can cover an abundance of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we are a people that recognize who we were and who we are. I pray that we would understand that we were dead, utterly helpless, entirely unable to satisfy your requirements for righteousness. I pray that we understand that we know you at all because you are gracious enough to open our eyes to see. I pray that we recognize that our faith didn't come from us, it was a gift to us. I pray that we understand that you love your children with a love too great to measure. I pray that we understand that we weren't too big to fail. We weren't so precious that a lonely God couldn't bear to go on without us. We are your workmanship, created for good works, so that your name would be proclaimed over every other name. Amen.